Joining me now to discuss is Dave Sirota. David Sirota, you were the first person that popped into my brain when I heard Fourth Amendment. Does that have David Sirota worried? Boston Globe has now started picking up and running with a potentially politically deadly story that was first unearthed by the great David Sirota. God bless this guy, David Sirota. I love that guy. David Sirota is not a journalist. He's a hack. Even the New York Times has called you a populist rabble rouser. Okay. Are you a Che Guevara? Are you a Che Guevara for our age? Uh, and you look forward to a day when college students wear your face on their shirt and don't know what you did? I, I wanted to start this conversation with the discussion of like what a political era is, because I think that term gets thrown around a lot. And there's a lot of talk about this being a, quote, transformative era. And I'm just curious to start here. When we talk about like what is it, what's the difference between like a presidential term or a president, a presidency, uh, and what we commonly refer to as an era, and as obviously an example of that, specifically uh, the Reagan era. Are we leaving? In your is it your sense that we're actually leaving the Reagan era? But before defining that, like, w what do we mean by era? It's such a good like basic question that we don't think about enough because I almost think about it as um, the opposite of politics. Like politics is the thing we talk about, the thing set of things we are talking about all the time, the issues we're talking about all the time, and that almost definitionally we're divided over all the time, which is why we need to talk about them and persuade each other and 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 push. But in every moment, there's a whole other set of things that are background assumptions or background conditions that actually we don't talk about that much because everybody more or less either thinks they're true or doesn't think they're movable or has made peace with them or, you know, just kind of laments the inevitability of them. Right. And so, and those, which is why we use the word era, th those are, those last longer. Right. Um, so if you think about, um, let's say in the 20th century to just divide it up neatly, the FDR presidency lasts four terms, but the FDR era launches with that presidency and lasts, I would say, through the election of Ronald Reagan. So that's, you know, a lot longer than the presidency, yeah. the three decades longer than the presidency. What does that mean? So the presidency itself, we know what it is, a uh, lot of policy, dramatic shifts in the American understanding of what government can and should do for people. But the era that it launches um, is maybe not, you know, as uh, everything that happens in the era is not something FDR would have done, but the era is defined by a set of assumptions about the utility of government to make people's lives better, a kind of general emphasis on helping the middle more than those on the top, et cetera, et cetera, um, and, and, and not a kind of pathological fear of the state, let's mm -hmm. say, like just, just a, you know, an arguments about the proper role of the state. Then if you look at that era, you say, you know, there is, I sometimes use this analogy of a stadium, in the stadium of that era, there's a left side of the field and the right side of the field, and they're different from each other. And the ball is, you know, sometimes in possession of the folks on the left side of the field and sometimes on the right. But everybody's playing within a set of assumptions about a certain kind of utility of the state so that Nixon can create the EPA. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't mean Nixon's on the left. It means Nixon is like living in 
FDR's mansion or FDR's stadium, right? And there's a right-wing view in that context, but that right-wing view may be Eisenhower being fine with 90-something percent marginal tax rates. Doesn't mean that that's the same as being a leftist in that time. It just means that every major figure in that time to be able to get to a position of influence had to pass through the filters of the kind of basic assumptions of the age and shared those assumptions because they were watching the movies of the time and reading the books of the time and, you know, trying to win votes in, in that time. And in the 80s, then with Reagan, you get a presidency, you get, in fact, 12 years of a sustained Republican um, possession of the presidency, but you again launch a new era um, that we can talk about, you know, perhaps we are in the kind of living through the death of right now. And so there's the extreme manifestation of that politics in Reagan himself. But the era is just, you know, actually maybe best summed up by Bill Clinton. The era of big government is over. Democrat right. said that. Um, Barack Obama, you know, his first office, new office that he created in the White House was the Office of Social Innovation. And in my book, I quote the assumptions, you know, the kind of statement that it made when it was launching that office. And it said, top-down programs from Washington aren't how you make change anymore. Well, Barack Obama was only able to vote in the United States because of a very effective top-down program from Washington that was so effective that Republicans are still trying to gut the Voting Rights Act. Um, but that was the kind of thing that even people on the left, even a community organizer from Chicago who grew up far from some of these power centers had to say. So the 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 era in this and the neoliberal era is defined by anything from outward like hatred of government on the far right end to on the left like kind of a, a feeling the government is like lamentable, pitiable, like it it should be good in theory, but it's kind of like the DMV like and again what that amounts to is a kind of shared unspoken consensus that if you can solve problems outside of government, you'd be better off doing that. When I interviewed Bill Clinton for my book, he said, it's always better if you can make it work in the private sector. Now, that's not a right-wing ideological view. The right-wing ideological view is like government is tyranny, right? Right. But when Bill Clinton is saying, it's always better if you can make it work in the private sector, he's showing the ways in which, he, he's making a statement that 80% of the most powerful political actors in the age would agree with, right? As close as you'd get to a consensus statement. Some may take further, some may take slightly less far, but a basically broad shared assumption. And what I think we're living through now is potentially the collapse of that era, that consensus. And, and you quote in your most recent article at The Inc, uh, Joe Biden, seeming, I guess, in retrospect, I'm not sure he, it was said with such um, epochal grandeur, but at the time, but in 1981, he said, quote, the Reagan tax cuts have ended growth of the social agenda. It's all come to a screeching halt. That's very early on in the Reagan presidency. He seems to be, at some level, recognizing a transformational shift. Uh, those are the kinds of, that's the kind of language you would use. Now, what's interesting to fast forward to? Sorry, let me. I just to correct sure. you on one thing there. He said that a few. He he was saying it about the eighty-one tax cuts, but I he see. said it a few years later. I see. Okay, but it's sort of contemporaneous to the era. Yes, absolutely. Right. So, so recognizing that, 
What's really interesting is that I've always thought that Joe Biden, and you and I have talked about this offline, I've always thought that Joe Biden is more of a thumb-in-the-wind kind of politician, somebody who reflects the political consensus of the day rather than uh, tries to blaze a new path. Uh, that That's how he's been in politics for 40, 50 years. Uh, during the Reagan era, Joe Biden reflected that uh, era by positioning himself as what was in vogue back then for many Democrats to say, uh, I am a Democrat, but I am not an old school New Deal liberal. I want to cut social programs. I am a deficit hawk. I am so-called tough on crime. You could go through the list. That was Joe Biden in the 1990s into the early 2000s. The Joe Biden of today is, I mean, he's the same human being, but it's not the same Joe Biden. And, and as an aside, you know, when, when I was working for Bernie Sanders, running, who was running against Joe Biden, at one point, we were talking about Joe Biden pushing for Social Security cuts, which he most certainly did. And somebody actually said to me, they said, you know, one problem you guys may face is that the Joe Biden that you're pointing out is not the Joe Biden who's now running for president. Now, you can say, oh, well, you know, that means that Joe Biden is a chameleon or he's not an authentic person. And, but, but separating out the this sort of personal evaluation of Joe Biden, the person, it does seem to be that, that the, the current Joe Biden seems to be reflecting a different set of ideologies, a different set of assumptions. Would you agree with that? And if, if you think that's true, I just want to hear you discuss what you think he is, I guess, pushing out there that is different from the Reagan era consensus. I mean, I know my answer to that, but I want to hear what, what you have to say about that. Well, I think, first of all, like there's something that's very interesting in politics where we reward consistency to the point of fetishizing it. Um, and I think you worked in Bernie Sanders for someone who that's at the heart of Bernie's appeal. I remember in 2016 or 2015, I interviewed um, in, in Philadelphia, there was a big Bernie rally and I was interviewing people and a very young person. I was like, why are like, why are all you young people drawn to like the oldest person in this race or whatever? And, you know, there's a lot of answers to that. And obviously those people, just young people have a tremendous amount of problems that Bernie was addressing. But I got a more interesting answer from this one guy who's like, it's like, he was like, it's the way we use the web. He's like, we're all like rabbit hole web searchers, right? We don't open up the New York Times every day and are like, what are the 10 stories that Dean Baquet, whatever, thinks that I need to read? The way we search is like we watch a YouTube video or equivalent. And then if we like that, we, we go linearly down into the tunnel mm -hmm. of that theme, that person, that thing. And this is true. Like, I know this from talking to people. This is people who read my work. Like, this is how pe people don't then go to the next author. They watch like four more things of you saying the same thing. You know, it's just, it's a thing in the culture. Particularly there the there is a New York Times podcast, by the way, which is terrific, called Rabbit Hole. It is absolutely Correct. true. And so this young person said to me, Bernie is incredibly well served by someone searching the web this way. <laughs> Cause you, cause you hear a clip of him saying something last week and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then you like keep doing another search and another search and the YouTube algorithm is sending you more. Right. And, and soon you're like in a hot tub in Burlington in the sixties. And he's saying <laughs> the exact same shit that he said in the, you know, clip from yesterday and that, and that that consistency was very powerful to people. So I, 
you know, I think there's a lot to be said for consistency. That said, I think we fetishize it in a way where we almost hugely disincentivize politicians from being persuadable people themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they're in the business of persuading others. Like democracy is all about persuasion, but we, we, we box them in. Um, if they don't happen to be like Bernie, that who you know, where the whole selling point is this is this mission, um, we box them into a place where if they're like, yeah, I've, I was kind of wrong on some of that stuff, <laughs> like we don't give them space. And so one of the things that's refreshing, I think, about Biden is, I think you're exactly right. Like I, I actually don't think this is a flip flop in the narrow, you know, kind of dismissive sense we use that word. Like I think he is someone who, you know, has traveled along with the center of conventional wisdom in the mainstream Democratic Party about the proper role of the market and government, um, uh, who, who has basically like been persuaded. You know, I think a more generous way to do it is instead of like, there's thumb in the wind, and I think that's real. But like, another way to say that is like, he's like, listen to evidence, and also listened to people listening to evidence, right? Like, the the things you say, you know this firsthand, the things you say were regarded as crazy by a much higher percentage of people five, 10 years ago than today, right? And mm-hmm. I'm sure you perceive that. I'm mm-hmm. sure you experience that. Um, well, he experiences that too, presumably, right? He, he, that Those those folks with, who do those those jobs, that's their superpower. And I think he has a very acute superpower in that way of just feeling rooms, feeling you know, where people are. And the truth is, thanks not to people like him, thanks to other folks in that half of the left half of the country, the con- the consensus has changed. Um, you know, Thomas Friedman is not the most important philosopher of the Democratic Party anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like the world is not flat and people now realize that. Um, like, and that's really good. Bernie changed the consensus. Elizabeth Warren helped change the consensus. You know, Piketty helped change the consensus. Just the facts of this economy have helped shift the consensus. And it's actually refreshing to me to see someone who, you know, seems to me in many ways to be going along with um, that shift. And and I think what's really important to distinguish, and this is where I think it gets confusing to some of the folks who would agree with you and I on a lot of these issues, this does not like when this ship turns, it's not going to manifest in immediate pivoting to the policy priorities that progressives might like. That's not that's just I just don't think that's what like an era shift looks like. Mm-hmm. It's going to look like someone not being beholden to a set of intellectual assumptions that seemed mandatory five minutes ago. And you're going to just notice like, huh. Like they don't care about a thing that everybody used to care about five minutes ago. I'm so glad right? you bring that up because there, there's an example that I want to just interject here that was so important to me and it was like momentarily noticed and then it, it kind of disappeared, but it was really important. And it was during the campaign when Ted Kaufman, Biden's longtime you know, alter ego, the guy who uh, was appointed to his Senate seat when he became vice president, he's his top aide forever. And Ted Kaufman, a good guy, by the way, a guy who pushed financial regulation uh, uh, during the, uh, the, the 
the Obama presidency uh, and was kind of trampled and really fought the good fight. But he went to D.C. This was in the summer of 2020 when Biden was already the nominee. And he said something to the effect of, listen, uh, he's told reporters, paraphrasing here, but uh, the deficits that Donald Trump is creating are going to pr uh, preclude us from delivering on our agenda. The pantry is going to be bare. That was the quote that kind of I circulated. remember that. That pantry bare moment right. scared the living shit out of me. Right. And and be and, and the reason it, it scared me as well is because it was like, wait a minute. Like you're this is we've seen this dance before. You campaign on big priorities, but you're still beholden to the Reagan era, neoliberal era conception of what is budgetarily and fiscally possible. That's a very era sort of specific thing. Completely. Perfect and, example. Yes. And then what happened was they got criticized for it. And Kaufman and the Biden campaign had to like immediately walk it back. So that was like a like a like a mini win, like a okay, like but I'm you know it's not that great that they're kind of flirting with that rhetoric. Like what does this really mean? And then he comes in and again, and we're going to talk about the the American Rescue Plan. I've got some some issues with what what wasn't in there, and actually one one thing that was in there. But much of the spending in there was a complete rejection of the Reagan era conception of what is possible. In other words, it was like Kaufman said this thing, he got smacked down, and either they learned their lesson or Kaufman was just sort of speaking out of turn or whatever. But the point is, is that at least first step uh, forward in terms of policy, in terms of just spending and in a direct way to get people money, uh, that was th that is a step out of the Reagan era. Now I will I can already hear people who are listening to this thinking like, oh, but you you know you're you're taking Biden's word for it, and doesn't and when 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 politicians are not consistent, doesn't it suggest they may be inauthentic? Like this whole idea of like years and years and years of people hearing politicians campaign for X and then govern as as Y, govern as the opposite of uh, of X. I mean, I think there's there's still people look at Joe Biden and and they're they're like. I'm not sure I trust that he really is going to do what he says he's going to do. And, and we, again, we're going to talk a little bit more about the American Rescue Plan. But I guess what, what would you say to folks who still remember the Biden record and are like, I, I think there's a mix of they, there's folks who don't trust that he's going to deliver. And, there, and there's also folks, frankly, understandably, who were, were so appalled by the old Joe Biden that they kind of can never forgive him. I mean, I, I can't. I can't argue against people who are like, look, Joe Biden helped lead us into the Iraq war. I can never forgive that guy forever. I just I, I can't forgive that. I mean, like, wh what do you say to people like that? I think that that kind of concept of forgiveness is a little more complicated in a democracy because this is not about your friend, you know, a personal friend. Like this is someone the public has chosen to govern your country. And so whether or not you forgive them, they now need to do things for you and everybody else. And whether or not you forgive them, they have that responsibility. So my view of this is like fight like hell to get the right person in there. And then when that person is there, fight like hell to get the best world you can get. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of progressives to be candid, there's a bit of an adjustment required to realize when you're winning the conversation, even if you're not winning the policy battles. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some adjustment required to understand how profoundly important winning the conversation is. Right. Winning the conversation is a slower thing to happen. It 
does not mean you get the specific ideas you want on day one or year one, possibly, or year five, possibly. But what I am talking about is the possibility of a new progressive era, of an age of reform. I'm talking about whether this is year one of a 40-year era. And that's a thing worth securing if you can get it. And I think what I observe among a lot of the people that I essentially agree with is is kind of a like a, a squeamishness about celebrating one's own victories, right? Um, Ted Kaufman saying the pantry's bare and then them being embarrassed by that and then them coming in and really pushing the rescue plan in a way that was not deficit sensitive. It's just, <laughs> right. the, the deficit was just not a topic. Like, I don't know. I didn't hear it discussed in the rescue plan. And, and by the way, much. the most amazing thing is because if you, if you take the historical analog, Obama came in, smaller stimulus, a lot of talk about deficits, immediately right after pivoted to deficits. Uh, Biden comes in, smaller majority, not talking about deficits. They pass a bigger bill, and they're pivoting, at least rhetorically, if not proposal-wise, you know, they're pivoting to infrastructure spending. I mean, that is, that is something, like, that, that's just factually, empirically, demonstrably. Sorry, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry, my phone cut off for a second. Um, yeah, I, I, like I will tell you, I am not a policy savant the way you are, or a you know process uh, insider, or know the ins and outs of Washington. Like I think a lot about culture and political culture, and I will tell you, the difference between a debate about the American Rescue Plan not really invoking deficits versus a debate about such a thing that was consumed by deficit anxiety is such a profound cultural turning point that augurs such a potentially different era ahead of you that I think we all have to just be mindful and aware of how cultures change, what it looks like when the thing you've been fighting for is actually starting to bloom and not like not like depressing yourself into skipping your own birthday party here, you know? Um, I, like, I don't think you would have had an American rescue plan without a deficit angst, without Bernie Sanders' two runs for president. Oh, that's right? definitely that, true. That's definitely true. But, but does that mean that the American rescue plan is Bernie Sanders' American rescue plan? No. Like, that's not how culture works. Right. But culture, like, the victories, the people who fought for that movement, the people who worked for it, the people who voted for it, have changed the conversation in such a way where the guy who's in there now, who ran profoundly differently, is hemmed in by a set of assumptions that are not his own by nature. That is a profound, profound victory. But I think the orientation of fighting from the outside, particularly when you're com coming from an outsider movement whose identity is being on the outside, is so used to losing is so used to not being heard, not be considered that there's sometimes a psychological adjustment required to, to even notice that yes, you haven't gotten everything you want. You may have gotten 30% of what you want, but they're having your conversation, right? Like right. they're, they're arguing back against you, but they're, ha they're on your turf now, right? They're in your stadium potentially. And the, the, mo the momentous nature of that can't be overstated. And I think the right actually understood that very well, 
very well. That's how they were able to build an era, not just a presidency, right? They understood that if David and I are having an argument about whether there should be a death tax, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what sides David and I are taking. If David and I are both arguing about whether we should have a death tax, the right has won. Yep, yep. And I think part of what goes on in progressive people's mind is that it's hard to separate I'm cheering the victories or I'm celebrating the success of changing the conversation and therefore delivering an American rescue plan. Again, not flawless, but certainly a much better than the Obama stimulus, you know, the biggest spending bill on, on direct aid to people, that you, that you can celebrate that. And I think, but I think people get um, a little bit put off by the idea that by celebrating that, that must mean I am celebrating Joe Biden, the man who I may not particularly like. And now I, I personally try not to organize my politics around whether I like a person or not. I don't particularly like Joe Biden, like as a as a person. I know too much about his record. Like I don't. I'm not. I mean, I I, I don't. I don't hate him either. Like I think he's just he's fine. He's like he's like Joe Biden. He's you know like I don't have. I find a lot of his policies from the past pretty odious. But I, I'm with you. Like I'm living in the in the present here. But I, I do think that people they're so used to 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 being on the outside and and being on the outside defining authenticity like to be on the inside of the democratic party uh in the early 2000s or mid 1990s meant accepting a set of assumptions that are uh, frankly i find grotesque right like like but but and i'm not saying people have to position themselves as insiders in the democratic party but there there's got to be a psychological shift where you can s celebrate honor recognize the changing conversation and the the actual policy victories even if they're not perfect and that you can do that without feeling like you are selling out or shilling for the bad guys or or kind of valorizing individual politicians uh, that you have you know a, a legitimate reason to 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 not particularly love like it's it's like Absolutely. separating out the personal and i think that's important i i think your stance of like not actually making it about individuals is helpful but i also think you know there's a little bit of like very basic psychology here. I mean, you and I are both parents. Like I've had, you know, different episodes of behavioral issues with both of my kids when they were, you know, like starting to go down a bad behavioral mm -hmm. path, like mm -hmm. never saying thank you to people or like not flushing the toilet. Yeah. Right. Whatever. <laughs> and, you know, you do a couple things there. I mean, I, and I, I, like, I think this is more applicable to what we behave as a citizen than, you know, than maybe comfortable. Like, you do, you do a few things there. You like get mad when they don't flush the toilet. That's definitely part of the mix. Yes. So that's like pressure. That's protest, right? Absolutely. You also teach them how to flush the toilet, which is different from getting mad when they don't do it. Yes. You, right? It's like, okay, I understand you're a kid. Like, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it for the fourth time, right? You show <laughs> them, you role model a better way, okay? And then, and this is a really important component that I'm sure you practice as well as a parent. When they do it right occasionally, even if it's still one out of every four times, that's right. You make a lavish performance yes. of how great it is that they did it, even though, as Chris Rock said, you shouldn't get a cookie for shit you're supposed to do. But like you go out of your way to exaggeratedly praise 
not the person, but the gesture. Why? Because you're like, it's pretty simple psychology. Like you're trying to get them to do more of that. Right. And also, and think, also it's like, what, what is it about? Right. Like, is it about, you know, ultimately to use the metaphor, you want the toilet flushed a lot. Like typically when, when, the, when the bathroom is used. It's such like a that, regrettable metaphor. I, it is. I hope, I hope my son Isaac is listening <laughs> and Zoe, <laughs> not to single him out. But the point is that you want, you want the, the action to be done and to, and to be, continue to be done. And it's not about, you know, like, yes, like to bring it back to the presidency, it's not about like, I mean, I, I, I think there's this ESPNization of politics where it's like, I'm rooting for the home team. I'm rooting for the star of the team. And like, I don't care what the star of the team is doing or what, what, what the team is doing. I just care that the team wins and the team looks, and it's like, I think to be more mature about it, it's like, look, I, I don't care if the team uh, gets praised or no praise or where it is in the standings or Joe Biden is loved or he's not loved. I just care about the long-term policy. Like that that's what yep. I care about. And I, and I agree with, you know, I think something you've advocated. I mean, your ex-colleague Brianna Joy Gray's advocate, which is like there also needs to be on the other hand like leverage and tough love. And that's the scolding part. And that should be real also. I I would I'm fine with various forms of hardball that progressives might play. Um in the same breath, at the same moment, not supporting things that they otherwise would support. Like, that's fine, too. I'm not, I'm not saying it's one or the other. Right. I think you have to, you know, it's carrot and stick. It's whatever you call it. But, like, I think you got to do both. But I, I do think there's sometimes a little bit of a, like, am I, am I, like, uncool if I applaud when people do the thing philosophically, at least, that's moving in my direction? It's like, no. Like, it's, like, it, it's a kind of combination of, like, you know, spiking the football for yourself and like patting someone on the back who's coming your way. Like if you don't create a reward system for them to listen to your philosophy, um, it's just, to me, it's just like dumb politics. And, it, and, it, and, 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 and the contrary is true. If you don't create a penalty system for them not listening to you, that's also bad politics. Um, but I think a lot of people emphasize one of those things or the other. And, you got to do both. You have to, you know, and right now, again, it's not that, you know, it's not that Joe Biden has pivoted to Medicare for all, which he should, but and he has not. It's not that he's doing universal free college, which he's not. But thinking about this as a cultural wave rather than a discrete set of policies, I think it is very hard to argue that this is the that he is riding the cultural wave of the Obama Clinton years. I, I, I agree. So let's talk about the American Rescue Plan real quick here. Um, the American Rescue Plan, my view is that the most of the spending in the bill was very good, hugely important, a huge step away from the Reagan, Bush, uh, I'm going to get it, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama era, that it spent money direct, it's going to go directly to people. Uh, it's not going to be trickle down. You know, we're going to give money to the banks. That's going to trickle down. Like, none of, no, it's like direct spend. Like, that is extremely good, and we need to recognize that. I think the omission of the minimum wage 
was not just a missed opportunity. I think it was an absolute tragedy because of the current Senate rules, and you need to have it in reconciliation. I think Joe Biden didn't fight for it. I think the progressives in Congress uh, did not hold out for it. I think they had leverage that they refused to use. And I think the spending on the Affordable Care Act, uh, the ACA plans, to simply subsidize the insurance companies was actually not just a bad omission, but actually is fortifying a system that is awful uh, and getting worse, uh, and that there's only so long you can avoid honestly and seriously dealing uh, with health care and actually having a fight with power. So I'm going to offer you my concern, and I want to hear what you have to say about it. My concern right now is that as this conversation changes, as, uh, as a new era hopefully begins, the fear is that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to use a metaphor, to, to grab. You know, spending does not have a huge amount of corporate organized opposition. Uh, going up against the insurance companies, the health insurance companies or the drug companies, that has a huge amount of very powerful, very organized opposition. And my fear is that you can only go so far with the low-hanging fruit of spending that has no corporate opposition, that to really change society, you're, you, you're going to have to go head to head with like really, really powerful interests. And I'm not quite sure that the, the Democratic Party or Joe Biden has any appetite for that. And I wonder, I'm worried that they've convinced themselves that they actually can make lots of change without ever having to be in confrontation with power. W what do you think? You know, in, in some ways, I wrote Winners take all to, to if, if it was trying to go after one idea in particular, I mean, it was really trying to go after many, but at the heart of the complex of ideas was the notion of the win-win, mm -hmm. right? Which is that you can fight for the least of among us in ways that only cause those on top to prosper. And that idea manifests in, you know, capitalism, uh, business practices, philanthropy, social enterprise, all these different things. And I was trying to suggest that exactly as you just laid out, on a lot of the most important fights for justice in our time, there is no win-win. The, the only way to do right by 50 or 80 or 90% of people is to make some people's lives worse. I mean, not like bad, but just marginally worse. Uh, take, take away some of their power, take away some of their resources, take away their influence, you know, opportunity to influence the process. So I'm a... You know, and and I think, by the way, that the shift that we're experiencing now with the crisis of faith in neoliberalism is a shift away from this like airy win-win thinking. I, mean, I think there's a growing recognition of this. So I think what you're outlining is that the Biden team has, you know, probably correctly understood, given just like the the path of least resistance and his own nature and this moment of crisis, that a bunch of the early things are, relatively speaking, win-wins, as you say, right? Like $1,400 checks for people, like, is, is I mean, someone's paying for it in some sense, but it's not, it, it's probably, it's, it's certainly net redistributive. So I wouldn't say it's entirely a win-win in the sense that, like, those types of things over time do actually shift the distribution of income. Um, but, you know, no organized, it, it's not an existential fight for people and that the things that are like 15 got expunged. So I think that's true. Um, and I think you're right that the basic test will be when you exhaust 
the relative win-win stuff. Um, and by the way, like because of the acuteness of the crisis, more stuff is a win-win than not because even business has an incentive to like have people not be broke as hell. Mm -hmm. and, you know, right. Um, so, so the, the kind of amount of in a, in a COVID, in a plague, like win, win-win options expand. Mm -hmm. Um, but at some point you'll exhaust them, uh, Medicare for all or any, I mean, healthcare, just not a win-win, um, territory, you know, so on and so forth. And, and you're right that, that those will be the tests. I think, you know, I don't have hope of him being someone he is not like, I don't think he's going to become Bernie. I, like, I, I don't think he's going to become Elizabeth Warren. I don't think he's going to suddenly become a power buster. Here's where I think the most hopeful version, the most hopeful intersection of the kinds of fights you want him to take and who he is, the most like hopeful intersection there to me would be his power to make some of those fights seem like not fights seem like just reasonable common sense things to do. That's kind of his shtick and his skill, mm -hmm. right? And so like he's very good at making things that he, he could be very good at making things that like could be weaponized as class warfare would be perceived as class warfare if coming from, you know, uh an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. I think he has the political power if he wants on some of those things to make them just seem reasonable, common sense. Like, come on, man, are you are you really against this thing? I, I don't know if he will do that. That would be the phase two beyond the win-wins. The and so let's play it out. Like, you know, Bernie, I saw just is about to introduce this, right. you know, the Medicare reducing me Medicare to 55, um, which, by the way, is another thing we should talk about, like, that I'm a big fan of, which is, and Ro Khanna and I did an interview about this, like, this kind of, um, what, what I like for lack of a better term call gateway drug in incrementalism, mm -hmm. um, which is different from just like the incrementalism of not wanting to do the big thing. Right. But like Bernie's done a couple of really interesting three, I would say gateway drug incrementalisms in the last year, in addition to his longstanding proposals. So he's done this 55 thing. Um, but also he did last year a, a plan for Medicare to pay for all copays and deductibles just in the pandemic. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Brilliant gateway drug, right? You just you get this program just to give everybody a little boost for a year, the worst year of everybody's life. And and, and as an aside, the American Rescue Plan, some of its spending, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to test the theory. You, you, you use the term gateway drug. It's to test the theory, which is longstanding, that once you create a program, it is much harder to get rid of it. And the yes. American Rescue Plan has, you know, the child tax credit and the like, some, a lot of its spending. Uh, was technically up for expiration, and there will be a fight on so-called extenders. To, so that it will that will fundamentally test the thesis that once you create a program, it is difficult to get rid of it or even to allow it to expire. Uh, and so, so that's already baked in uh, in totally. terms of some and of that, the spending. That's what I mean by look. If you were in there, you would have made that child thing permanent, right? But but like you're not in there, so. That to me, the hopeful intersection of real progressive ideas and like Joe Biden reality, the one year child benefit is like a perfect example. Yes, right? yes. Because it's like, it is a progressive kind of idea. On my idea of like the philosophical turning of the ship, it is a real philosophical turning of the ship, even if the benefit is 
modest and time limited, right? Philosophically, it punches a thousand times above its weight because it does a thing the country does not do right now and introduces a concept of uh, an obligation we have to each other that is very hard to put back in the bottle, right? And, but the Biden part of that is like, let's do it for a year. It's not, therefore it's really hard to call it socialism or communism. It's hard to like boogeyman it, right? That's the Biden part. And, and I think like, that's an example where I say, if that can be done on, and, and you know, that's not a fight against corporate power, but that is, that is redistributive to be sure, right? Like in the long run, that is fundamentally redistributive. Um, particularly if you keep doing it, if you, if that, if that grows. So that's the kind of thing where I would say there's a, there's potentially a very hopeful intersection where big things like that get done, but in this way where that is smart, strategic, not getting three miles ahead of the public, wedding appetite, satisfying appetite, wedding appetite, satisfying appetite. Um, it's not what other people might do if they were there, but you know, um, I think the idea of um, actually having more of this recursive relationship between what people want, what they get, what people want, what they get, is a smart approach for the reality of a country that has, you know, levels of fear about tyranny that, in my view, are completely delusional, but they are out there. They're out there in big numbers. This is a big part of our political culture. It always has been. And even though a lot of these things like Medicare for all poll very well, there is a big, fat, determined opposition in positions of high power, but also in regular people's intuitions that whether they're a majority or not, that like is just not there in Germany. That's just not there in France. And I think some of these things, um, whether it's, you know, Medicare to 55 or just in copays and deductibles or a one-time wealth tax, like Bernie suggested, or the child thing, it's a smart way of doing like pragmatic progressive policy where you increasingly buy the public in more and more to a commitment to do bigger and bigger things. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think as it relates to that specific proposal, I think where the rubber will really hit the road uh, is on the proposal to have Medicare be able to negotiate in bulk uh, the price of prescription drugs that that the insurance industry uh, doesn't want Medicare to be extended down to 55, but the oldest element of the public that's not covered by Medicare uh, is frankly the most uh, financially problematic for the insurance industry. In other words, the insurance if, if the insurance industry was going to pick one segment of the population to give up as a customer base, it would be the oldest non-Medicare uh, segment of the population, which mm -hmm. can be more expensive to them. Where the rubber is really going to hit the road is that Medicare drug. I mean, that is a direct confrontation with corporate power. And it will be very interesting to see where the Biden administration comes down because, as you say, it's a common sense idea, right? I mean, it's, you know, why is the VA allowed to negotiate the price of prescription drugs? Why does every other advanced industrialized country's government uh, is allowed to negotiate the price of prescription drugs, but somehow Medicare is not allowed to negotiate the price of prescription drugs? I mean, obviously we know the answer. It's because, I mean, 
there's no, nothing more complicated. The, the drug companies have owned the government and have made sure that that has not been put into play. And that has been brought up for 20 years. And so it, it's like test cases like that, where it's going to be basically a democratic proposal versus corporate power and watching to see uh, what the Biden administration does and how it navigates that and pushing them into that confrontational position when necessary. To me, and we can we can kind of conclude on this point, which is that to me, that is what progressives in Congress and what progressive groups need to focus on in terms of mobilizing uh, Joe Biden. And I'll go back to the, to the minimum wage for a second here. My fundamental problem with what happened on the minimum wage, uh, politically, in terms of a strategy, was that Biden promised the $15 minimum wage. The House progressives and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you know, any one senator has power, just like a handful of House progressives have power because the House is so narrowly controlled. They could have said, listen, up front, we cannot support a bill, uh, a rescue bill that does not have this in there. They could be the antithesis of Joe Manchin. The, Joe Manchin's implied power comes from the, impl, the, the him implying that if he doesn't get what he wants, he will take down the whole bill. I, I'm not for taking down, you know, large, uh, mostly good pieces of legislation. But the point is, is that if there is not that other pole of pressure that's willing to actually stand their ground, then Biden, I don't think he will not be mobilized, successfully mobilized into fights that we need him and the White House engaged in because they feel like they can just take for they can just avoid those fights and take for granted the progressive votes. I would ask you, like, how do you think without I'm not talking about the granular nitty gritty strategy here, but how do you think progressive people, progressive groups, progressive legislators should be thinking about, you know, where and when to draw the lines in the sand, uh, how they get to mobilize Biden. And by that, I just want to be very specific about that. It's that you have to make him need to work for your votes and support and make him get into battles that all things being equal, if that pressure wasn't there, he would try to avoid. I, I feel like that is the if if I was a you know a progressive lawmaker in the House, for instance, I'd be I'd, I'd have that on my mind a lot. Like, how do I mobilize him into fights that need to be fought that he doesn't necessarily want to fight, but I can actually get him to fight and get the White House, the huge enormous power of the White House, behind the fight if I actually leverage my power? Because I think there's a fear among progressives of actually wielding the power that they have. Mm -hmm. I I think, the, you know, there's a there's no contradiction um, between giving him and his White House big love when they do things right and are turning your way and doing that more than I'm seeing it done right now and being incredibly militant when not, you know. So right now, if you think about the rescue plan and the and the minimum wage fight, like I think the amplitude could be increased on both, right? I, I think the progressives could, a, a lot of progressives could show more love on the real philosophical turning reflected in the rescue plan and could have also acted much tougher on the minimum wage thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a contradiction. I mean, I think actually each buys space for the other, right? Like 
it's if if I am being edited by an editor who I know respects my work when it's good and likes my sentences when they're good, that buys that person space to tell me this paragraph isn't working or this book idea is not working. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take that from some person on the internet. It's someone who I have trust with, who who I know actually has rewarded me for doing the right thing, um, who I, who I now may listen to more. That's one. The other is something that, you know, AOC has said, which I think about so often, which is, again, going back to this idea of politicians and changing minds, you know, it's another, I think, false conventional wisdom we have, um, which is, you know, you'd often say, uh, hear people say, you know, I don't put my finger in the wind. I don't listen to the polls. I lead. I wasn't elected to, you know, like just reflect back to people like I was elected to lead, right? It's like a cliche of American politics. Well, it's one of these cliches to like examine a little bit because last time I checked, these people all check polls all day long and that's sort of their job to make sure that they continue to have a job. And so the idea that they're like miles ahead of public opinion is actually sort of preposterous. It's one of these like fake virtues we create that like is it isn't real. It's it's not actually how anybody operates, but it's this like fake virtue that you should just be like out in front of public opinion, like pull you know pull public opinion to you. Um, we all have a very big role to play in creating the demand that a Joe Biden and others are going to supply. And, you know, AOC talked about specifically like how it's artists and writers and people like that, like a couple, a couple steps outside of actually direct politics who have this huge effect on like what the demand is. Right. Um, if a very large number, and I know the numbers from Medicare for all are like overwhelmingly high, right. But we still have a very large, in part because of minority rule in this country, we have a large and often decisive number of Americans, not only powerful interests, regular people who really do think communism is around the corner, as you know, Mm -hmm. and who really do deep in their bones believe that we would have gulags a couple years from now if we started not having medical bills, right? Like, it's ridiculous, but you and I both know that is a important chunk of the American electorate. And if those people didn't think that, it would be a lot harder for those powerful interests to astroturf that kind of you know opposition to the death panels and whatever, right? So like, that's a role for us. It's a role for us that we can work each other. We can actually like have these arguments with each other. We can work the culture. Um, it's not like we over-focus, I think, on these actors who are really downstream in many ways. Like where a lot of this is taking place isn't there just broad assumptions of the culture of what people think and feel and believe what makes them scared, what makes them excited, what makes them feel like they're gonna have a better life? Well, and- I, I, I think a lot of it, though, I, I honestly, I think a lot of it is that some of the things that we're talking about involve the the the, the acknowledging a truth that is scary, which is on many of these issues, we just, we talked about how is Biden going to go up against corporate power? Is he going to try to avoid that? But on many of these issues, if we're being totally honest, which we are, 
all uh, the, the biggest issues are going to require a transformation of the society, meaning mm-hmm. the average person's life has to potentially somewhat change. Like you may yep. not get your health care from a private health insurance company. You may hate your private health insurance company, but it's the devil you know, right? You to Completely. deal with to deal with climate change, it's like, well, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I might have to drive in a different kind of car. Is it going to like I? It's like it's there. There, I think you, you touched on a fear of like tyranny, which is in some cases, you know, the sort of how how pronounced that fear is is somewhat delusional. But I also think there's like a just a kind of very human devil, you know, uh, totally. fear of of the unknown and the Republicans, the conservatives who want to keep things the way they are, play on that masterfully. I mean, anytime you talk about healthcare, really, the healthcare issue, it really truly does come out in this. You can ask people about Medicare for all. Yes. And so, you know, big support. Right. The minute you start talking about specifics like okay this is going to mean this and you're not going to have this but you'll have this other thing over here it's like wait a minute i already i've already gotten used to this horrible thing that i hate but at least i i sort of have gotten used to it and know how to kind of navigate it even if it's horrible right like it's like that unknown and that culturally that is to me on when it comes to transformative change that's the biggest obstacle and and the thing is is that during the new deal you know, FDR could go out and say, look, look, things are ab- – we're in the middle of the literal Great Depression. Like the, the the devil you know is absolutely, completely, and totally untenable. So like here are some things that are unknown, these proposals, and and, and there's – it's easier to kind of get – I mean it's, it's the whole, you know, every crisis is an opportunity. But every crisis in some ways is an opportunity because what, what that's really saying is that the status quo crisis, you know – the current crisis is so bad that people are more willing to consider and 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 embrace an unknown step forward because the status quo is so bad. I just hope it doesn't it doesn't get so bad that that we need it to get so bad in order for things to to fundamentally change. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a huge question. I don't, I'm not asking for like a silver bullet answer here, but like, how, what are your thoughts on how to overcome this sort of devil you know uh, uh, resistance to like the the changes that we're all going to have to make in our lives if we're going to survive the climate crisis if we're going to actually deal with healthcare i think honestly the the discussion we're having now and the point you just made is that the real beating heart of this and is incredibly important and i actually don't think we talk about it enough which is that you know you and i both write a lot about powerful private interests vetoing progress mm-hmm. and i think that's a enormous part of this story and pick your policy issue that is usually the number one reason thing x is not happening Mm -hmm. okay but what you just said is equally true and i think something we talk about much less which is that's not the only obstacle part of what allows those powerful interests to do that is there is this resistance in the american public to things to which there's very limited resistance in virtually every other rich country, Mm -hmm. right? Like lay popular opinion. And, you know, in a way, powerful interests become like this easy alibi. Like it's just ExxonMobil. Well, like, you know what? Like there's oil companies in a lot of places and they have political clout in some of those places. But there are, as you say, like real 
views around the proper role of state and society and other things that are just have always been different in this country come out of a, you know, I mean, the come out of the Declaration of Independence, like the B side with all the, you know, criticism of the king, like we were very prickly about central power from the beginning. And so you take like something like a Green New Deal, which in the details of it is completely oriented to the issue of successfully migrating. It's not just about getting off oil, as you know. It is completely a justice program, not just for marginalized people who are hurt by climate change, but it it contemplates real transitional justice for people who, for no fault of their own, were oil field workers or whatever, right? It does that. It thinks about that. But you and I both know that in the way it has been read and processed and understood by say people working, you know, a $50,000 job in the oil industry in Louisiana, that's not how it's been understood mm-hmm. by virtually anyone in that arena. Yep. Well, that's our failure, not theirs, right? If virtually nobody in that world perceives that about it, yes, that's because of Fox News, and yet you can blame all that, and that's true. But at the end of the day in politics, there's no whining to the ref. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like, if, 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 like, the Green New Deal envisions a beautiful, just transition for that oil worker in Louisiana, wants that person to be made whole, wants that person to get a different education, wants that person to have better health, wants that person to get a job on the other side of change. The, in the details, the Green New Deal is on the right side of that thing, right? But I think it's if it's not read that way, it's not perceived that way. Same, I think you could say the same of a lot of these policies, even the ones that are overwhelmingly popular or the ones that are not. And to me, I say that as a profoundly hopeful point, um, because if it's just about like, what's Joe Biden going to wake up feeling in the White House residence one day? Well, what can you and I do? If it's just like, can we get money out of politics and make ExxonMobil not powerful? Well, I mean, you and I can do some things, but like, What's the likelihood of success? If we say we have a lot of working of each other to do, we got a lot of arguments to have with each other, that we, we can shift the nature of demand in this country. We need to make something like the Green New Deal read differently to tens of millions of people than it reads right now. We need to make something like Medicare for All feel like the most patriotic, by the way, pro-small business, which is completely legit, an argument progressives never make, mm-hmm. right? Medicare mm-hmm. for all be the most pro-small business thing in decades. Absolutely. Why? Because everybody with a business idea, why can't you do your business idea? Because you'd lose your health care and your kids would lose their health care if you went and pursued your greeting card company idea or whatever it is you got. That's right. Right? That's right. How come progressives never talk about it? Like in in those terms. No, healthcare well, is the biggest job lock. Totally. It's 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 like it's like, you know, three carat golden handcuffs. Mm-hmm. Um and I think if we view these problems that way, where where there's still quite a bit of work we have to do to win each other over, win people over to these positions, win people who might be unlikely allies, um, then it it puts a Joe Biden or it puts a a congressional leadership in a position of followership of us yes, and what we're able to achieve in the culture um, instead of a position of lording over us and deciding what whim is going to control our future. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's absolutely the case. And, and un- unfortunately, it's not a, it's, 
it's not a it doesn't feel satisfying in the sense of like, oh, you've still got a lot of work to do as like a, as, and not just work on like one person or a couple of senators or a couple of house members. I mean, that work is important, but it's like work in the society, like as a whole. And and that can be, I think, overwhelming to people, but it's important to know. I mean, I, you, you mentioned the ExxonMobil thing. I mean, the thing that I think about a lot uh, is yeah, we need to get off oil. Yeah, we need to have more, you know, uh, a transportation system, whether cars or the or the like, that's uh, much more uh, uh, off of fossil fuels. But you're right. Like you can blame Exxon Mobil, and I do blame Exxon Mobil for a lot of it. I mean, they knew about climate change. You can go down that rabbit hole, and it's all true. But what's also true is like the person who. Because their city's public transportation system is terrible, who has to drive 30 minutes to a job because they can't afford a house near the where the job is, like they need to use right now a lot. There's examples of people who have to use fossil fuels. So, like, how do you actually make the how do you make that person, those communities feel like the transition that we must make, that science says we must make? How do you make that that? So that community feel like that transition is doable, achievable. It's not going to be, you know, super painful, right? Like, cause there, again, it's like that devil, you know, you know, I, I hate having to drive 30 minutes. Like I don't, I, I would rather have an electric car, you know, but it's expensive. I'd rather be on a public transit, but that doesn't exist. So like, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I, I guess I got to stick with the devil. You are, you know, and I think that's so hard to deal with, especially, and you mentioned era, you know, the hangover of the Reagan era, even if we're transitioning out of it, it, that demonization of government, it has a hangover in like, okay, maybe I'm more open to governmentally driven solutions, but like, if the government can't deliver on its promises, like, like, I feel like that's baked in too, right? Like, the government may talk a good game, the politicians may talk a good game, they may, you know, the best of in, the, the, the road to whatever is, is paved with, with good intentions, the road to, to hell, right? Like, that, that even if the government wants to do things right, they're going to screw it up, and it's going to screw up my life. Like, I feel like that's the hangover of the Reagan era. And, and, Getting out of that, I mean, that is that to me is the real challenge, right? Because because the other the other last thing I'll say on this is is that you still have examples of the government screwing things up, right? Like the postal service thing. Like I don't think you can read the postal service disaster as like okay, the postal service is a disaster. That means we can't have Medicare for all. But you can imagine people who aren't sort of thinking through the nitty gritty. You, you can imagine that thought process, right? Like the government can't even deliver the mail. Like what? And it's going to deal with my health care. I'm not making that argument. But my point is, is that I feel like, like how to break through that. That's the fundamental challenge of our era. I, I fully agree with you. And I think it's to me a winnable one. I, I, I agree. I, 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 I agree. And, I, and your, your point about us celebrating victories while also holding the line is so important. And on Jared Hardis, thanks so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.